So if you don't know, we're in a series called Formed. It's based on Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, where Paul says, I'm, he uses the, the biggest metaphor he can. I'm in labor, child labor, right? You can't think of a more intense, like, uh, than labor. He goes, I am in labor to see Christ formed in you. And so that's the name of this series. The goal is to see Christ formed. And we're looking at practices that have been around in the church for a couple thousand years that people have engaged in to help them have Christ formed in us, that that's the goal. And they're just tools, right? When we start to focus on the tools more than what's being formed, we make a mistake. So if I'm bragging about my prayer life or how often I fast or how I do a Sabbath, I've missed it because those are shadows. They're not actually what matters. What matters is, am I becoming more like Jesus? The life that he lived, the brilliance that he exhibited, the way that he was at peace and in community, the way he lived, that's the goal, that we want to live like Jesus lived. And so last week, we started with the Sabbath. That the Sabbath is not some domineering thing to take something away from us. Jesus says, no, it's a gift for you. And that we looked at, there's a rhythm in scripture of six and one. And scientifically, it's been proven that that rhythm still exists in humans and actually throughout the creative order that God has built it in. And when we Sabbath correctly, when we sanctify or set one day apart that it's unique and it's different from the other six, six, something happens in us that we live in sync. And that's the Sabbath day. And I hope that you're figuring out kind of how do I do that well, right? Well, piggybacking on that is this other idea and it's slowing. So Sabbath and slowing, they're like Siamese twins, the same thing really. But slowing is more broad, kind of broadly, how do we live culturally slower? And I think it's these two that we need more than anything else. That's why I started with them. Because the pace has accelerated today. Do you know that? Traveling. So my family roots are St. Louis, Missouri. 125 years ago, if I wanted to go from St. Louis, Missouri to Grants Pass, Oregon, how long would that have taken me? Yeah, six months, right? And you hope Donner Pass didn't happen. You're always worried, am I gonna die on this trip? And that's the way most of human civilization has traveled, right? Slow. Now I can get on a plane and it's about a two and a half, three hour flight from San Francisco to St. Louis, Missouri. Like it's quick. Um, when I went to school, just a short while ago, 1990s, when I'm at OSU, yeah, it seems like a short while ago to me. I guess it's not anymore. That's how you know you're older when people laugh when you say a short time ago. <laughs> when I was in my 20s, 30 years ago, I would go write a research paper. And it required me to load my stuff up in my backpack and leave my house and then travel to the OSU library, get in there, go to the Dewey Decimal System, remember that? Pull out the, the card file, like flip through, okay, there's the book, find the number on it, okay. 76-0.13, and then go to stacks and stacks of books, find the book, take it off the shelf, read through it, photocopy the pages that I need, put the book back, and that's research. Hours and hours and hours. How long does it take to do that same thing now? Yeah, 200 milliseconds on Google. And so I like that. 
But what has happened is there's an accelerated pace of life that just kind of, it starts to seep into everything that we do. So there's this professor that wanted to test this. And his name is Richard Wiseman. You can look it up. And what he decided to do was to go throughout countries of the world and to measure how fast people walk. So they would go somewhere and they'd mark out like 60 feet somehow. And they would sit in a cafe or somewhere. And then they would time people as they cross those two markers. How long does it take people in different cultures to walk 60 feet? So an example is Malawi. In Malawi, it took them 31.6, the average, 31.6 seconds to walk 60 feet. Then they went to New York City. Guess how long it took a New Yorker, the average New Yorker, to walk 60 feet? 12 seconds, right? From 31.6 seconds in a, a culture that's a more relaxed culture to New York City where that's the average. It means people, some people were doing it like six seconds. You got, oh, right? And you're going, well, come on, Matt. That's New York City. This is Grant's Pass, right? Huh? How about the explosion of energy drinks? Right? It's crazy. It, it used to be just Red Bull. Now there's Red Bull and there's Amp and my favorite, full throttle. <laughs> right? I'm going full throttle till I throw a rod, man. It doesn't matter. Okay, good for you. And they used to be like 11 ounces. Now you go in there, they've got these little mini kegs with pumps on them. Like, oh, well, that's why you're walking so fast. I can see that now. It's insanity, right? It's creeping into every aspect of culture, right? So I'll give you a test. Have you ever been in a shopping center or Walmart or Fred Meyer or wherever it is, and you're behind someone and you start getting mad at their pace? You're just like, come on, get out of my way. And you can't get by them? That's pace, right? All of us have that pace. Have you ever been listening to somebody try to tell you a story or tell you something and they're doing it so slowly that you jump in and help them? That's pace, right? We can't even listen to people. Like, I know already, I'll get it all right. You ever gone down 6th Street at five o'clock? They're at, right at 7-Eleven and you're trying to make the decision, should I go in the right-hand lane? Can I swing by all these people, right? That's pace. I remember I was with this, she was 78, probably 78 years old when she did this. She was giving me a ride home, old family friend. We're right there and she like looks over and she's 78. She's like, ah, those look like old people cars. I can take them. And she just rips out of there, like, right? Gets in front of everybody and then she slows down to 20 miles per hour again. I'm like, oh, you're that person. (laughs) You ever got on an elevator and then complained about how slow it was. What is taking so long, right? You know the first button in an elevator that breaks? Closed door, you got it. Because we're like, close the door! Psychologists have actually studied that for some reason, in elevators, your anger peaks in a matter of seconds. Like you get on, hi, how are you guys doing? What is taking so long? Like, it's insane, right? You're in an elevator. It's helping you go up flights of stairs. Take the stairs then, right? But there's something in the pace of life now that's woven itself into us that we don't even recognize anymore. Just, oh, we gotta go fast, 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 fast. And the flip side, I think of the same coin. The other side is this. It's a parent's worst sentence. 
when you're at home and everything is shalom and it feels great and one of your kids says, I am so bored, right? Like, oh. Listen, today we live in an information and entertainment saturated society. You don't have to ever be bored. Do you know that? There's always something, something vying for your attention, trying to grab you. It's nonstop. It's all the time. But there is a detriment to that. In your own time, Google the health benefits of being bored. When you're bored, what happens is this. Your brain has time to do some things. You get much more creative when you're bored. Have you ever let your kids be bored and all of a sudden they find something to do, right? Instead of entertaining them and informing them, they just, right? Because creativity peaks when you're bored. Focus. If you have trouble focusing, boredom is one of the best ways to get your brain to focus again. Self-control. That boredom helps you in self-control. But maybe most important is just the mental health of your brain. When we've got all this information and all this entertainment nonstop coming into your brain, it requires attention. So your brain is always full throttle, just trying to absorb all this information, trying to do stuff with it all the time, 24-7. And today, a lot of what tends to grab our attention is very intense stuff. So you're on social media or you're watching the news or whatever it is, and you're watching intense messages. Maybe it's the war in Ukraine. Maybe it's what the government's doing. Maybe it's uh, people behaving badly, right? Getting in fights or just, and it, and it does something to you. Your brain responds to that intensity and actually releases cortisone and all these chemicals into your body. Normally those are helpful because your brain is like, hey, this is intense. Get ready to run or get ready to fight, right? That's normally what your brain is doing. But do we get up and run? What do we do? We sit there and look at 200 more of those same intense messages. So neuroscience are saying, here's what you're doing. Your brain is literally sitting in a chemical stew. It's frying your brain. It's so unhealthy for us. That that boredom is actually a very good thing. Your brain, when it's bored and when it's not having constant attention on it, when it's not full throttle, your brain is able to do some things. It starts to prune information. That's unnecessary. We don't need that anymore. It starts to categorize information, right? Instead of it just being jumbled in, it starts to like file it away so that you can recall it later. Ever have trouble recalling things? Could be because you never let your brain just be bored and do what God designed your brain to do, to prune, to organize. It would be like this. Here's my analogy of what we're doing to our brains today. With all the information, all the entertainment, here's what we're doing. It'd be like your house. Let's see you keep going grocery shopping. You keep the flow of Amazon packages showing up at your front door. You keep getting the trinkets that you found at a yard sale. You do that, but you stop taking out the trash. What happens to your house? It looks like that little Toyota minivan down the road right here. That's what it starts looking like. So you wonder why your brain's like, ah, well, because you never gave it time to like do things. You were never bored. Boredom is good. And I think the biggest reason why we need to be bored, often it's boredom that God speaks. He pokes and prods us when we'll be st- 
stopping and bored for a moment, that that's when, man, he speaks to us. I think God speaks all the time. We're just not listening at all anymore because we're informed and we're just nonstop, okay? So, slowing, what is it? Let me just give you some verses that you have the Bible author saying, here's the rhythm you should be in. Psalm 46, verse 10, you should know this one well. Be still, stop going, stop full throttle, shift into neutral, be still and know that I am God. I will, not I might, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. When you stop and you're still, what happens in that moment is you remember the exalted one. You remember who's in control. Right, Psalm 27, brilliant, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Why do you wanna wait for the Lord? You're gonna be strong and let your heart take courage. If this world right now and the way things are has you worried and discouraged, the antidote to that worry and to that discourage is what? Wait for the Lord. And notice, the psalmist says it twice. Why? Because we don't do it, right? Here's what we do. We'll wait for the Lord. All right, God, you have till noon and then I'm taking over. Because listen, you're taking way too long and something's gotta happen right now. So the, the psalmist just repeats it twice. Lamentations 3.25. Unbelievable circumstances when this was written. The city of Jerusalem is being burned to the ground. Jeremiah's prized city. He's watching it burn to the ground. And he writes these words during that very difficult circumstance. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Sometimes the most important times to stop and to wait is when there's intense, difficult things going on all around you, lamentation style. All right, this one, everyone knows it, Isaiah 40, 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What a brilliant promise. You want strength? Those that wait in the Lord. You want vision like an eagle? Those that wait in the Lord. You feeling weary and faint? Well, the way that you get out of that weariness and that faintness the Bible says, they that wait on the Lord. All right, last one, Romans, chapter eight, verse 25. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. There is a tie in between waiting and hope. I think we start to grow discouraged and we start to lose hope when we stop sitting and waiting and being reminded of who's actually in control, that we don't steer the rudder of this world, that I'm not gonna change things. It's God that controls things, that he'll make the sun rise tomorrow, that he's the one that's able to change people's hearts, those that are around me that are causing me to be discouraged. It's God, right? And waiting does that. 
And so there, there's this rhythm in the Bible. I could do another dozen verses like that. But I think there is a picture that for me really defines this struggle so perfectly in the life of Jesus. It's Luke chapter 10. You can turn there beginning in verse 38. And we'll talk about this great little story because I think it gives us the tension that we feel and the solution to it. Luke 10, 38. Now, as they went on their way, they, the disciples, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Brilliant. Notice how mundane this circumstance is. It's a meal. We have three of those a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Right, what a mundane thing. But I'll tell you what, some of the most important spiritual things that can happen to you and me happen in the mundane. And if we want to be strengthened to happen to handle the big stuff, man, it's how you handle the little stuff that actually trains you, how you treat your sister, how you cook a meal, how you entertain a guest, that those are actually the training ground, the proving ground for the big stuff, like maybe the death of a loved one or an addiction crisis or depression or whatever it might be, the way you handle those big things, man, it's how you deal with the day-to-day, -day, the mundane. Those are training you. I have a saying, I've said it to my kids. You'll play just like you practice. It's not Saturday that matters. It's what did you do Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday that determines how you'll play in the big game. So this happens, I think, brilliantly in the most mundane thing of all, just cooking a meal. So you got Martha. I think we would look at Martha as a great American, wouldn't we? It tells us that it's her house. She owns the house, right? She's a go-getter. She bought the house. We're told that her sister Mary and Lazarus, her brother, actually live with her, that she's the take charge. She's the CEO. She's the one that got out there and did it. And you still see it in her. She's commanding Jesus to command her sister to do something, right? Like she's still on it. I'm the boss, I'm taking charge, I gotta make it happen, come on. How's it working for her though? Her great Americanness. how's it working for her? We'll just start going through it. Her mind, Jesus says she's distracted with much serving. She's taking on way too much, isn't she? She's overwhelmed. 
And now because she's overwhelmed, she's demanding that Jesus volunteer someone else to get her out of the hole she dug. Someone come bailing me out, right? She's mad. Her relationships with people are suffering because of her drivenness. She says to Jesus, you don't care for me. Is that true? No, right? She's mad at her sister. Her sister's just sitting there. How dare she just sit there? People like Martha can't stand it when other people don't do stuff. Have you noticed that? They always want you to be doing something. What are you doing right now? Why are you sitting there? Is something wrong with your legs? Something's gonna be wrong with your legs if you keep sitting there. Go do something. I don't care if it's right, just do something, right? That's the Martha mentality. Are you enjoying yourself? Stop it. You know who's missing from the story? Her brother Lazarus, who lives with her, right? John 11 tells us Lazarus and Jesus are bros, that Jesus loved Lazarus. They're good friends. But Jesus coming over is a big deal. Where's Lazarus? I think Lazarus is like, Jesus is coming to my sister Martha's house? Drama! <laughs> I'm busy, man. What are you doing? I don't know. Reshoeing my camel. That's what I'm doing. Yes, I got to reshoe. Anything. I just will not be there, right? He knew it. He knew what was going to happen there. I'm not going there. Her relationships are all jacked up. She's manic. Jesus says, you're anxious. Literally there, it's, you're being torn to pieces. Like you can't stop it, right? You're in too deep. You can't turn it off now. You ever been in that spot? I'm in too deep. I got to just keep going. I got to, uh, uh, uh. I don't have a choice. It's all those stuff. Next week will be different. I'll turn it off next week. But next week never comes, does it? Because you don't know how to turn it off. You get this mythical destination, but like a mirage, every time you get there, it just moves itself down a little bit further and you keep going and going and going. And there's no joy in the journey because it's always about a destination that you can never arrive at. And lastly, she's miffed. Jesus says she's troubled. She's just troubled. She's mad at Mary, demanding Jesus, doesn't care. Jesus needs to do something. It's always like, hey, is it... I'm in a, I've got a problem and someone needs to come here and help me out, right? It's not me. It's if you would have done something, I'd be fine. You know, people that blame shift all the time. Like it's never them. It's if Mary would just throw in, if Jesus cared a little bit more, I'd be fine. Blame shift. Here's the truth. She'd invited Jesus over for dinner. Here's the truth, verse 41. Mary had served and then said, yeah, we're good enough. And she'd quit. She said, it's good, it's fine, it's good enough. The truth is, Martha could not relax. And typically, we're unable to relax because of one or two problems that we have. Number one is overvaluing ourselves. We overvalue ourselves when we start saying things like this, I'm the only one that can get it done. It's all up to me. I have the skills, I have the gifts, I have the abilities that no one else has, so this falls on me. I have to do it all myself, right? That's an overvaluing of yourself. I'm in control. We rate, we wait on God to realize who's actually in control. But the second one is just as, just as important to think through, undervaluing yourself. The undervaluing of self is this, I only have value when I get stuff done. 
I don't have value as an image bearer of God, as a child of the king. I don't have innate value. The only time I have value is when I accomplish something, when I achieve something, when people approve of what I'm doing, right? So for her, the feast with Jesus had to be the best Bethany had ever seen. That's why it's not just serving, it's much serving. She wanted to go around Bethany the next day and have everyone say, wow, that was amazing at your house last night. That was incredible, right? Because that's where she got her approval. That's where she got her value. She wanted 100,000 likes on Instagram. She wanted the be real to have her and Jesus smiling at me like, yeah, right? That's what she wanted. So she had this dream of it all. So she just goes hard. Eight course dinner. Walking around with an hors d'oeuvre platter, making sure everybody's happy. Filling up glasses of wine or whatever your theology, glasses of grape juice, whatever she's doing. Answering the door, letting people in. Hey, take off your shoes. Hey, over, you can sit over there. The pot's boiling over. Someone spills wine on the carpet. She starts to, her smile starts turning into a, uh, a grimace and she looks like she's gonna bite you now. Ever been there? That's Martha. Because she didn't realize her own worth. Something was happening in her. And so she's driven. So what's the solution? Jesus says, hey, time out, Martha. Time out, America. Time out. One thing is necessary. The problem, Martha, is not your sister or your circumstances or me not caring for you. The problem is, is where you are finding your value and your worth, what you're looking for for purpose and for meaning. That's your problem right now, Martha. And one thing is necessary, one thing. That what you're doing right now, all this isn't actually for me, Jesus would say, it's for you. You're doing this for you. You're not doing this for me. I know this. God will never give me too much. And when I'm Martha overwhelmed and I've taken on something I shouldn't have taken on, and Jesus would say to me, Matt, you're not doing this for me anymore. You're doing this for you. Either because you undervalue yourself or you overvalue yourself and you're being driven manic. Martha had lost her true north. She had lost the reason why she was doing stuff. And she had been mastered by something else now. Mastered by approval or accomplishment. She'd been mastered by it. And what she needed to do, Jesus was saying, you gotta re reorient yourself to true north like your sister's doing right now. Mary knew when to quit because she was oriented to true north. She knew, huh, it's good. The meal is good enough. Jesus would have been happy with probably some bread and some wine, right? He wasn't looking for the massive thing. Jesus would have been happy with bread and wine and conversation and community, but not Martha. She's doing it for her. So Jesus says, you gotta reorient yourself. Well, how in the world do you sit at the feet of Jesus, right? That just doesn't seem possible now. It's easy back then, I could see that, but how do we do that today? So I read through Ephesians recently, and what a brilliant book that is. Unbelievable. And there's a little phrase that I had not seen in this light before. It's Ephesians 3.17, and it's a prayer. Paul does two prayers in Ephesians, in chapter one and in chapter three, and they frame the bulk of his theology. Chapter four on up is practically walking it out. And these two prayers, oh, they're unbelievable. And in this second prayer, at the end of all the theology that he's teaching, he says this, that he may grant you, this is a prayer, 
to the church at Ephesus, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And this is the phrase, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Is Ephesians 3, 16 and 17 written to unbelievers or to believers? It's to a church of believers. This is the only place in the Bible that talks about Jesus in our heart. So we use it as a way to talk to unbelievers. That's actually not biblical. Paul's praying for believers and his prayer is, oh, after I've talked to you for all this time, oh, that Christ may dwell. It's a temple term that the king might dwell in your hearts through faith. That you and I as believers, we never outgrow Jesus. It's not, hey, I prayed a prayer and I'm good. Paul's saying, oh, that you might grow in your knowledge and understanding of Jesus. And then he goes on, just read that prayer, it's brilliant. That you might know his love that passes all understanding. Do you guys know the love of Jesus Christ for you? that passes all understanding. The only way you and I resist the Martha of our culture today is to understand and be rooted to and secure in a love. That's not based upon your value, what you accomplish or what you do or what you do not do. It's based on something completely different. Do you know that love? So Wednesday night, I had the grand privilege of teaching 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter. Brilliant chapter. And part of what I tried to say there was the same thing. You've got to know something. You've got to know how secure God's love is for you. And so one of the texts I went to was Romans chapter eight, verse 39. There's this whole kind of dialogue Paul has, like rhetorical questions. And he looks into the, the, into the dimensions of time and space and every possible dimension saying, look at all this. And then he concludes that thought. It's amazing. In verse 39, of Romans 8, he says, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why can you, why can I never be separated from God's love? Because you and I positionally are in Christ Jesus. Do you know how often that's used in the Bible? How important your position is? that you can be secure, the way you resist the Martha culture that we live in now is knowing, ah, I'm secure. I'm rooted to the rock of Christ's love for me because I'm in him. And so the way I explained it on Wednesday night was this. It's something I stole from Adrian Rogers, great preacher. And he gave this story of flying back from Europe into Washington, D.C., and then going through customs. And he goes through customs and he's there and the guy in front of him, the custom guy's taking him apart. And they find this big wheel of cheese he bought from Belgium. And he's like looking at the cheese and he goes, you can't bring this into the United States. And the man was like, well, I talked to the people I bought it from in Belgium and they assured me that it would go through customs. And the custom officer looks at it again, no, you can't bring this into the United States. He goes, well, I got a piece of paper. He brings out some kind of paper from the Belgian people and it said, hey, look, it can be imported. And the custom guy looks at it and he goes, listen, under no circumstance are you bringing this cheese into the United States. It's not allowed. So the man said, oh yeah? grabbed the cheese, stepped out of line, unwrapped the cheese, proceeded to eat the entire wheel in front of that man, hung, 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 ate the whole thing, stepped back in the line and said, can I bring the cheese in now? <laughs> man, of course, yes, you may. You can't separate them. 
Romans 8, 39. Nothing can separate you from God's love in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus. And because you are in Christ Jesus, over and over the New Testament says, listen, nothing can separate you. You're a child. You're a son. You're a daughter. You are loved. And nothing can separate. doesn't matter how much Martha you accomplish or how much Mary you accomplish. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. You got to rehearse that in your head. You got to keep telling yourself, how many times in the New Testament does it tell us the same story? You were in the kingdom of darkness. Now you're in the kingdom of light. You were a, a son of Satan. Now you're a son of the father. You were over here. You were a sinner, but now you're a saint. Over and over, it rehearses this story that we're supposed to rehearse in our heads. Listen, I don't belong to that anymore. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We're supposed to rehearse this story over and over. Like there's this motif in the Bible of lights turning on. How does the Bible begin? And God said, let there be, right, right? There was darkness and there was chaos. My life is dark and chaotic. And what does God say? Let there be light. How does the Bible end? You and I are in New Jerusalem. It says this, there was no need for the sun or for light there because God was the light. Like the motif is there. Wherever, almost every time you see light in the Bible, it's speaking of this change that happens to you and me, that we see things in a new light. The first prayer of Paul in Ephesians 1 is this, that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened, that you might see things as they actually are. See the Martha tendencies, see the culture for what it is, and you, oh, Wow, I'm enlightened. I'm enlightened. And that only happens when we wait on him. You get light. So has anyone seen shadow art before? Have you seen that? Where people do things and then you sh shine a light on it and it shows you something? Well, there's some shadow art that people made out of garbage. I got a couple pictures of it. So here's one. So you see the shadow back there of the two people laying down? Pretty cool, huh? And then here's the one I really like. So, the world tells us something. If you could just have him, if you could just have her, and a cigarette, and a glass of wine, man, that'd be the life, right? Doesn't it sell us that in some kind of iteration? But it's the shadow. And then all of a sudden, God turns the light on, and what do you see? Oh, it's garbage. Oh, it's garbage. The only way we battle the pervasiveness of our culture and what it's trying to sell us is when the light turns on and all of a sudden you see things for the way they actually are. And the only way we get the light turning on very often is what? I gotta slow down. I need to wait. Oh, that my eyes would be enlightened. That's what slowing does for us. So I've said in this, I'm gonna try to be as practical as possible. All right, so our story was the mundanity of, of cooking a meal, right? We do it all the time. And it's there that Jesus brings out this incredible message because how you practice is how you'll play. And there are daily things that you can start to just say, you know what? I'm going to fight the flow of Martha in me, the culture in the way it is, in just the little things that I'm gonna do day to day. And that helps you then to slow down. So I'm gonna just give you some practical ways. Number one is this, you wanna slow down? Try it in your driving, right? So here's, here's a... Absolute challenge, I know it. For one week, for one week, do not pass a car. 
Whatever car you get behind, you trust God has them in front of you for a reason and you just drive behind them. You're saying, Matt, that is mission impossible. Here's how I do it. I drive a Volkswagen bus. I am the slow car. <laughs> I had this lady who, I gave her this advice many years ago and she lived in Selma. And she came to church, but her husband did not. And her husband had some medical procedures that week. So for a week, she's driving from Selma here, just slow. And her husband's like, what is wrong with you? And she never told him. She just, no, I'm just driving this way. No, if you're gonna do it and your husband's not here, tell him why you're doing it. Save your marriage, right? So try that. Just, Lord, I'm trusting this person. is there for a reason and I'll drive slow. Number two, Every meeting, every appointment you have for this week, leave at least five, preferably 10 minutes early. And then get wherever you're going and sit down and be bored for 10 minutes. And see if that meeting or that time isn't way more productive because you're not rushing in, stressed out, like, oh, okay, let's sit down. And you're, you're jumbled up, too much trash in your head. You're able to be like, okay, I've sat, I've thought, I've prayed. I've asked God's blessing on this time. And I walk in with a very different mindset into that time. Try it, right? Try it for just a week. Leave early, five minutes early, that's it. If you drive to work, try going to work in a different way. Like ride your bike, walk to work, take a different route. Do you know that there's a bus system in Grants Pass? Ride the bus one time to work. I guarantee God will meet you there. You'll have opportunities like never before to share of Jesus. <laughs> I just try it, just break this routine of, I go this way because it's the fastest route. That's this routine that's in us, break it. And then lastly and most importantly, enjoy the journey. There is no destination but New Jerusalem. Everything else is a pit stop. We get in our head a Martha mentality that if I could just get here, I'd be happy. No, you won't. No, you won't. Instead, enjoy the journey. And my kids are so good at teaching me this. So Myron, my nine-year-old, every time we do something, he makes it fun. So we go in the hot tub right now because it's freezing cold out. In the hot tub, we don't just go to the hot tub. In the hot tub, he brings his little minifig Lego guys and we have these races. We put them in the jets and then we see who makes it to the other side of the hot tub first. Like it's nonstop. And then we're tweaking our little mini figs and trying to do little things to make them go faster. And then he just invented a new game in the hot tub is you take the mini figs and then you take, I choose one, he chooses one. And we take them to the bottom of the hot tub and see which one can swim up fastest. And we've learned if you'll take their heads off and barely put their heads on, it's a little bubble of air and they swim a lot faster. <laughs> right? It's no matter what we're doing, we're gonna have a good time. And I learned this maybe most impacting many years ago, probably because the book I'm reading, and I'll read the quote of it, but I just read this book and I took Elijah, my 15 year old, when he was four years old, I took him to Walmart. And of course we get to Walmart and what's the first thing your kids have to do when they get into a store? I gotta go to the bathroom, I gotta go to the bathroom. You're like, oh great, Walmart, you're gonna touch everything, oh great. So, Take him into the bathroom, we get in there and he gets done and he loves to flush the toilet. Why? Because commercial toilets are so much better, aren't they? They're just like, oh, oh, oh. So, it, so he flushed the toilet and he's like, dad, can I do it again? 
And for some reason, I was grumpy or something. I was like, no, you can't do it again. And immediately when I said that, I flashed upon this quote I'm going to read for you. And I thought, man, I'm a grumpy fuddy-duddy. So I said, sure, you can flush the toilet again. Why do I care? All right, it's grand's pass in the wintertime. We got more water than we can deal with. Flush it a hundred times. Swamp the place. I don't care, right? It's like we start getting into this Martha, like just, are you kidding? Enjoy the journey. And the quote was from G.K. Chesterton. I believe it's in his book, Orthodoxy. I'll have to check on that. I was in a big G.K. Chesterton mode then. But he says this about children. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. <laughs> Four, grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony or boredom. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Brilliant, right? Jesus says, if you want to come to me, you've got to come as a child. Like we lose something, we become Martha's. And I don't think we're gaining something. Slowing is a way that we get back to like, hold on a second. What am I doing again? Right? You have permission to flush the toilet twice in Walmart. I don't care, <laughs> right? Like, are you kidding? These joys that are there. Sometimes we've got to unplug. Sometimes we just need to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, like right now. Get back to who we are anchored in this truth that I am valued not because of something I produce. I'm valued because I'm in Jesus. And I can't improve on that. So try these things.